I find the best hack for me is having a really well-organized schedule and then a really complete set of to-dos and ensuring that those things fit into it. And I actually, this drives my wife a little bit crazy, but I schedule downtime. My view is you need downtime, but if you don't schedule downtime, there's a whole bunch of holes that just become wasted. Welcome to Conversations with Connors, a NetworkWise podcast, and I'm your host, Adam Connors. NetworkWise trains and educates individuals and organizations in the science and art of networking to accelerate sales, personal development, and career opportunities. In Conversations with Connors, I talk with a variety of highly successful individuals in order to gain insights on how they built, maintain, and cultivated their relationships in order to live a life by design, not by default. Today, I'm joined by a true leader, George Kalatidis. We covered a lot of ground in our conversation from some of the interesting work he's done, the incredible experiences that he's had, and how at the crux of all of his success in the boardroom to the football fields can be attributed to strong communication skills, teamwork, discipline, and above all, excellent leadership. Overall, I really enjoyed talking with George and hearing his unique perspective on these topics. I have a feeling that you will take great pleasure in being a fly on the wall while listening to my conversation with my friend, George Kalatidis. Enjoy. George Kalatidis, welcome to the show. I'm excited to dig in, man. We're going to have some fun. Awesome. Adam, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah. George, what's the best possible outcome today for you? You know, as I've gotten older, we talked a little bit about this in the elevator on the way in. Um, to me, people, friendships, family, and experiences have become significantly more important than things. And sharing those experiences and um, helping people appreciate that there are ways to be more disciplined, to be better in your life, to make more of yourself, and that you're only given one life is a message that I spent a lot of time on with my kids with some of the nonprofits that I'm focused on, helping build the companies that I work with, the sports teams that I coach. And so that's a really important message to me. And I spent a lot of time thinking about how do we be our best selves? How do we make the most out of our life? Wow. All right. There's a lot to unpack there. So we're going to go in a lot of directions. Before I start digging deep, can you share some of the, I mean, I know you are a man of experiences. What are a couple of experiences that you've had the good fortune of experiencing that just come to the top of your head? I came from very humble beginnings, as you know. We grew up together, and um, uh, my dad was a Greek immigrant. And so uh, just starting with a family culture of great love and great commitment and hard work and the value of hard work and the value of education, I think, really set me up to meet people along the way that all had very significant impacts on me. And so as I think about, you know, from a young age and my parents and moving on, I think about our football coaches and the unbelievable additions to those teachings that you learn at home that they both supported and bolstered and built upon and improved. Um, and throughout life, being able to come into contact with folks like that and and recognizing that this person can make you better, I think is, I look back at my life and I think I'm very fortunate to have been with the people that I've been with and continue to seek those kind of people out. Wow. When did that switch flip? You know, it's a great question. It's very, uh, it's very hard to say. Um, I think it probably really, really flipped maybe at some point 
in college where, you know, there was a particular professor who really took an interest in me. Um, I don't think at, at, in high school, I don't think I appreciated uh, how much of an impact the coaches were having or how much of an impact certain teachers were having, like Coach Pesci, also a history teacher, um, uh, our line coach. Um, so I think it took me a little bit more developmentally and intellectually and from an experiential standpoint to start to recognize that. Um, and I had a particular professor in college who I'm still in touch with, who's now in his 80s, um, who I think really started to open my eyes to the importance of relationships and people. You, you, you always had relationships. People are always important. But I don't think that it was necessarily um, so well thought out or so planned. Mm. What about your very benevolent, right? Like you give back in a lot of different ways. And I don't know how much you feel comfortable sharing. Or Absolutely. Not, but, but when did that happen? Like, when did you realize like- So giving back was something that was important in my family and in my family life. I um, I did a fair bit of volunteering um, in high school. In fact, I became a volunteer fireman at the age of 16. Um, and uh, that was a pretty significant commitment, both between having, you know, your primary job of work uh, or school rather, plus having a part-time job, plus being um, an athlete. Um, we carried a pager. And if that thing went off at two in the morning, you got out of bed and you went to whatever, whatever the emergency was. And so it really, it really kind of kicked off there. And I think over time, giving my time was something that mattered. But as I became busier with work, and family and life in general, I started to apply that a little bit more differently. And so instead of rushing to fires, joining boards of charities and helping them set strategies and, and do things of that nature, as I've gotten more successful in life and I've started to be able to get some of my time back, I now am starting to give that time differently where it's not, hey, I can show up for an hour board meeting and I can make a financial contribution to help this organization, but um, I actually want to spend the time working with people. And, and part of that has manifested itself in, in my coaching, which I take incredibly seriously and I coach uh, football and lacrosse. Wow. I'm going to want to dig into that a little bit later too, by the way. Where, getting back to your time, how do you decide where where to allocate your time? And that's, again, you're, you're probably pulled in so many different directions between, you know, the three, four kids that you have, a wife, all the different businesses, the coaching, like how do you say no and what do you say and how do you choose, how do you say yes? So I love that you brought up time. Um, you know, there's only one thing you can never get more of. It is time. It's fascinating to me how humans value certain things and whether, you know, it's, it's a new car um, or it's uh, whether I'm going to buy Starbucks or I'm going to buy Dunkin' Donuts and how do I want to value that? Whereas the most valuable thing you have is time. And people are so willing to waste their time, to throw their time away, but then they're determining, do I want to spend $2.99 or $3.05 on a coffee? And so I spent a lot of time both coaching the CEOs who are in the companies we invest in, along with my family and the kids I coach around the value of time. They're 168 hours in a week. And so a very common term you hear from your spouses, from your kids, from your players, from people who work for you, there's not enough time. And so I believe just about any problem can be broken down. Even a non-mathematical problem can be broken down into math. And so when you start to break down the hours in a week, everybody has significantly more time than they think. Even a busy CEO has more time than they think. Wow. All right. That's awesome. And we're very aligned there. I always tell people, you really can't get me upset unless you waste my time. You can make fun of my kids. You can take you know my money. It'll, it'll, I'll make that back. But time, you can't. There's nothing you can do with that. So well, it gets it gets to the stoic philosophy of right. You can only control yourself, mm. and so I want to control my time, and I want to be judicious with my time. And as you get older, you know you have less time, 
And so the importance of spending it even more wisely is critical. But if you can teach that to young people who waste a lot of time playing video games, watching TV, doing, doing things, and it's important to relax the mind. So I'm not suggesting you should never play a video game or you should never watch TV. Um, but certainly the amount of time that's wasted on those types of things, particularly for young folks. And I think even more so, even as people are getting older and, and sort of the whole culture of work has changed. So uh, it's very, very important. And when you break down to the math at 168 hours, you can pretty quickly figure out, you know, even if you sleep 10 hours, that's 70 hours of your week. That, that leaves you 98 hours to do stuff, right? Most people aren't sleeping 10 hours, but you can pretty quickly start to go through that math with your kids. And they're like, wow, I have two or three free hours a day. And I can't tell you what I did with those two or three hours. And over a lifetime, we're talking about years. I'm so happy you brought that up. I, it's funny there. The number one predictor of career success is actually the the quality of your relationship. So so that that's a fact. Gallup's done polls on it. Uh, University of Chicago, they've done studies on it. And, and that's stuff that I talk about with a lot of organizations. And, and I tell people, you break it down, your waking hours, if you, 1% of that time, getting back to time, it's like nine minutes and something seconds. I'm like, if you can just allocate half of that, five minutes to a relationship, reaching out, touching base, doing things like that, the ROI is significant. I call it an ROR. It's a return on a relationship. You know, so again, time, I'm, I, we're just so aligned there. So do you have any, in the spirit of time, do you have any, you know, RPM? Have you ever heard of that? Or just like some of these bunching things? Do you do anything like that? So, you know, certainly I've heard of the, some of those things where it's, you know, read all your email first thing in the morning and do it at the end of the day and don't get distracted by it during the middle of the day. I've spent less focus around... um those hacks and more focus around scheduling. I am a fiend about my schedule and I'm, and about scheduling things out. And so even coming to visit you here, we had the time scheduled, but on my, on my calendar includes the drive time. And so for that drive time, that's 90 minutes of downtime. And so I'm looking at my schedule saying, well, okay, how am I going to make that 90 minutes productive? And then from my schedule, I create lists. Mm. And so on my list of you know the top 10 phone calls I need to make, let's try to get them done in that 90 minutes or as many of them as I possibly can. And so I find the best hack for me is having a really well-organized schedule and then a really complete set of to-dos and ensuring that those things fit into it. And I actually, this drives my wife a little bit crazy, but I schedule downtime. And uh, my view is you need downtime, but if you don't schedule downtime, there's a whole bunch of holes that just become wasted time. Mm. What would you consider wasted time? Is that like TV, things like that, or? No, I don't think TV is a wasted time. And I tend to watch, when I do watch TV, I tend to watch either documentaries or history or things that I think can broaden my knowledge or broaden my perspective. Um, I watch the news. I try to watch differentiated types of news so I can have sort of multiple points of view. I don't think that's a waste of time. But again, I think in, in the right allocations, I think sitting down to watch a family movie with your family where you're all together, I don't think is, is a waste of time. I think that, you know, on a rainy day, if the kids sit in the TV room and they watch, you know, four movies back to back to back, that's a waste of time. If we could, I'd love to bring you back to some of the experiences. I, I know you've done some really interesting things. Um, anything in particular pop out to you, like some experiences that you've had, things that you've done that you think are, let's call extraordinary. Sure. I don't know if they deserve to be called extraordinary, but they certainly were experiences that absolutely molded me and impacted 
the success that I've had, or in some cases where I've not been successful and, and I think sort of who I've become as a person. I think they started very young and I think really um, my father was a, a huge progenitor of this, which was, you know, I would go to work with him on the weekends um, if I wasn't playing sports. And so um, I, I spent time in factories as a pretty young kid, started driving forklifts, using overhead cranes, um, was around guys welding and doing things like that and sort of people who were working incredibly hard. and really learned at an early age the value of putting up your hand and saying, hey, I'll do that project or I'll go do that. So I was a volunteer fireman for about 10 years and and quickly learned how to drive a fire truck, which is pretty big at the age of 16. A lot of the guys I was in the fire department with had building companies and landscaping companies. And by the nature of being in a volunteer department, you sort of need to be local, right? And so I went to work. Um, I went to work for one of those guys. And uh, really just as a, as a kid who was going to mow lawns. And I kept putting my hand up saying, I'll do this, I'll do this. And by my second summer, I was running a full crew uh, where we were land clearing. Uh, you know, this is in the 80s in Westchester, big housing boom. And so I uh, was in a, put into a leadership position at a very young age with a crew of guys in some cases who were 15 or 20 years older than me, um, oftentimes didn't speak English. So I had to leverage my Spanish. And I don't think I realized it at the time, but that sort of put your hand up, volunteer, um, step in, don't be afraid to make a mistake, learn from mistakes you make, I think served me very well. And so when I took my first job out of college, I went to work at GE Capital, it was in 1990, and they were a significant leverage buyout lender at the time. Um, it's about a $9 billion portfolio, which is sort of laughable in today's market. $9 billion deals get done, but at the time it was a very large portfolio. About six billion of that went into workout, and um, I impressed a couple of people early on, and so I put my hand up to go do workouts, and nobody else wanted to do that. Everybody wanted to do new deals, and uh, as a result of putting up my hand, I ultimately, at the age of you know twenty three or twenty four, was effectively running companies and sitting on their boards, helping restructure the operations or restructure their balance sheet, and from there, it was just my experience just really sort of accelerated. Wow. So let's talk about leadership then. Well, first of all, how would you define leadership? I think that it's hard to create a, a concrete sort of neat definition of leadership, but being a good leader means knowing enough about everything, but not knowing everything about everything, right? And so you have to be a master of none, but a jack of all, if you will. And uh, you have to um, teach your people, but then empower your people. And so I think Critically, as a leader, setting a culture of norms and acceptability will make you, uh, I think, a better leader. Um, for example, if you work hard and you want your culture to be work hard, you need to lead from the front and demonstrate that. And then you're going to hire people who work hard and your team is not going to tolerate people who don't work hard. If you create a culture of bad news first, right, and sincere honesty and deep overt honesty, right, problems are going to arise. But if you make it also clear to your team that mistakes are acceptable, problems arise, it's going to be all hands on deck to then go assist that problem. You create a culture of accountability along with that hard work, and there's no fear of making mistake. And this was very much the GE culture when I worked at GE, which was fail often, fail small, fail fast. It's okay. Learn from it. Move on. And, and as a result, don't make big mistakes. Uh, and, and I think when you create that culture, you've got a group of folks who are always learning, 
who are willing to take sort of appropriate risks, um, which you have to do in life and you have to do in business. So I think first and foremost, the leader's job is to set the culture. I think it's to set the tone um, and then it's to recruit the best people uh, and have them go do what you recruited them to do. If you need to tell them what to do, right, you've hired the wrong person um, or you shouldn't be a leader. Mm. Wow. That's a really succinct and great definition of leadership. Let me ask you this. You've, you've done all these workouts. When you've come in in these leadership capacities, I'm assuming based on the the industry or the type of company, you've kind of had to be a chameleon, if you will, of a leader, right? Like you said, in one, there's different types of leadership. How how have you been able to do that? Or did you apply the same type of leadership to each of the organizations that you went in and restructured? Overall, I think the, the leadership um, is the same, irrespective of the situation. Now, in tougher situations, there may be a greater sense of urgency. And so I had the great fortune of working for not one, but three four-star generals in my career. And, and one of them was the Supreme Allied Commander NATO. And he had a saying he would constantly press into me, which is clarity. Clarity, clarity, clarity. And so I think if you if you go into a situation as a new leader and you're not going to necessarily have the time to sort of set the soft tone to really understand, right, and you're going to say to folks, look, we're in a crisis, okay? We can get through this crisis, being incredibly clear. I understand you all have great ideas, uh, and we're going to get to those great ideas, and I want to hear them. But today, we've got to focus on keeping the doors open. And I got a lot of experience doing this, and so we need to do this, this, and this, okay? Now, in the context of that, I'm assigning this to you. You go apply your capabilities to that the way you want to. And I think that the military, obviously, is, is the finest leadership school in the world. And if you have a senior officer tell a junior officer, I want you to take eight men. I want you to walk up the left side of the hill. I want John to carry a rifle, Bill to carry a machine gun. And then when you get to the top of the hill, I want him to sit here and him to sit there, right? You clearly don't trust your leader. You also do not know how to really push leadership down into the organization. And that's not allowing the leader of that individual action to actually be able to react at the moment to do what. So what you really need to say is, hey, uh, junior officer, we need to take this hill. We need to take this hill in this period of time. And we have these resources over here available to you. So you look at those resources, you go create a plan, about how you need to attack it. And I recognize that no plan ever survives first contact, whether it's in a military setting or in a business setting or in a social setting, right? And that you, I trust to then deal with those things that come up at the time. Yeah. And so I think if you if you set the overall culture uh, and tone of trust and you're very clear about what the mission is, you can really apply it to all situations. That's great. I like that approach. It's, you know, and it also just reminded me of the whole Mike Tyson thing. You know, you can have a plan until you get punched in the face. But you're saying, again, if you're setting up a higher level instead of something so narrowly focused, a higher level approach that people can be a little more adaptable and, and that, do what they right. need to do. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you want to disperse and push down some of that leadership onto trusted lieutenants. Yeah. Any books in particular that you've read that for, on leadership or just in general that you're like, that you've drawn upon? I'm sure it's an amalgamation of a lot. I know you're- Yeah, I, I'm a voracious reader. I travel less in this post-COVID world, but my goal used to be a book a week um, and easy to effectuate that when you're spending a lot of time on a plane. Yeah. I talk about wasted time, get on a plane and watch a movie, 
I don't do that. Look at my calendar. I organize my notes. I listen to podcasts or I read books uh, or newspapers or reports, et cetera. And so in a post-COVID world, I'm not reading a book a week, but they principally are around history, military leadership, philosophy, um, self-improvement are, are categories I really like to focus on. So I'm, I'm a huge fan of Jocko Willink. We've talked about yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of Ryan Holiday and um, the overlap between sort of the philosophical thought of stoicism, I actually think helps make us better leaders, right? And sort of understanding that you can only control what you can control, whether that's with the people who work for you or your family, right? And so you can you can set good goals, you can give people the tools to go achieve those goals, you want to support them to get there, but ultimately they're going to have to do it on their own. So, so Jocko, huge fan. Um, Holiday, huge fan. Actually, a fantastic book on leadership was written um, by a guy named Hal Moore. I go back to it all the time. He actually was a reasonably famous general from Vietnam. Uh, they made a, um, a movie about him. Um, we were soldiers once and young. His, oh, yeah, his yeah. book is absolutely fantastic. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I'm a voracious reader. Really? That's great. What were some of, did you have any, like, did you ever read anything and it completely changed your perspective on how you were doing things? I have spent a lot of time reading Stoicism, and I think it, it has helped really sort of be more self-reflective and recognizing that the way you perceive yourself isn't necessarily how others always perceive you and ensuring that not only are you, are you delivering a message you think you're delivering, but doing it in a way that that people really understand it. Yeah, it's a great takeaway. It's funny. I do... Um... I've got this certification that teaches people how to network and the beginning, you know, one of the first stages is um, a self-awareness assessment. And then you have it, you know, it, it's, it's, it's super enlightening. And what we found is that most people that think they're self-aware are the least self-aware. So it's, it's really, I mean, it, the data proves itself out like 90 something percent. It's pretty significant. And I love that it's backed by data, right? As I said earlier, you can really take anything down to math or data. Yeah. Were you always math guy? I was always strong in math. Yeah. Um, and I, and I like how you can solve math problems and whether that's in, you know, finance or in operations and running a factory or things like that. Um, but I've also always really enjoyed history and uh, politics. And so I was an economics major uh, with a political science minor in, in undergrad, which at a liberal arts school really allowed me to not just do economics and accounting and finance, but philosophy um, and world politics and things of that nature, which I think um, ultimately made me a much more well-rounded person and are critical, I think, to the way to, to thought, right? I think liberal arts teaches you really how to think mm. and how to ask questions. and um, how to how to come at problem solving in a way that the sciences don't do as good a job, and I think we are increasingly more in society with computers and the way things are done, focused on very technical skills and very technical educations, and I think those are important. And I certainly got some more of those technical skills going to business school, and I majored in finance and management, and also supported that with a dual major in management of organizations, which was much more soft and much more about leadership. In fact, the best class I ever took was not at the business school. It was actually at Teachers College, and it was a class in industrial psychology and really trying to understand how to read and, and understand what motivates people and what they're actually saying with their body language or their words that's not necessarily overt. Wow. I got so many questions now. <laughs> I'm going to try to uh, stay focused. Um, 
I want to ask you about, because you just brought up something, I'd be very curious to get your opinion or perspective on like what's happening with all this like chat GPT and all that, you know, Mm -hmm. we talked about like technical skills and, you know, know, some of the things that you're talking about are more quote unquote soft skills, which I actually think are the harder skills because they're not so defined and, and mathematical. So I guess that's my first question. And before I forget, hopefully you can remind me, I want to know when you go into a company, you know, if you're seeing through the years and all the deals and all the industries that you've experienced, is the common thread more of a cultural thing? That's where you need to make the changes? Or is it more of a business? Is it a business decision usually or a numbers thing? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. wh- Which one do you want to go first? Or two totally different? Well, let's, let's, uh, let's talk about uh, chat GPT okay. just because that seems to be on everybody's mind at yeah. the moment. And we'll, we, can, we can segue then into the companies. Works for me. I believe Goldman Sachs put out a report that said AI is going to put 400 million people out of work uh, over the next decade. Uh, Now there's 7 billion people on the planet and certainly lots of them are living in agrarian countries. And so they're they're not going to be as negatively affected by that. But conversely, that means people in industrial societies will be more affected by that. Um, So I think it's going to be very interesting to see where that goes. Technology marches on. Whether it worries us or not, it is going to march on. That that has been the, the you know human history for six, ten thousand years, whatever it is. And so, so I don't think there's things that we can do to change or stop that. I, I think it will have very heavy negative ramifications for those um, in what I would call you know mid and to upper level white collar jobs. Ultimately. Um, do you really need lawyers? Do you really need accountants, right? And so an accountant is a more technical skill. So that may go more quickly. But over time, the amount of knowledge uh, and, the, and the speed at which it can read will quickly you know, divorce itself from the best lawyer in the world in terms of being able to argue a case, knowing the law, et cetera. And so I think we haven't really even thought through all the potential ramifications of that. And if you just sort of simplify that down to, you know, autonomous cars, the amount of code that changes between an autonomous car and an autonomous missile is, is very small, right? And so as, as these things come into broader commercial use, the ability to, to use them for nefarious purposes also gets worse, right? So we're not limiting sales of Teslas to to our enemies, right? And so how difficult it is to rip the code out of a Tesla, it's a self-driving Tesla, right? And figure out how to put that into a drone or into other things. And so um, the confluence of all these things and the speed with which they're going to happen, um, I think is is gonna be, is is fascinating, right? And, And I think culture Broadly speaking, I don't mean the culture you necessarily create for your family or for society, but just culture in general is 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 changing at such a rapid pace, largely driven in some respects by technology and the speed of communication. You know, humans can't even keep up with it, right? And so um, some of the things that are on folks' minds a lot about, you know, toxic masculinity or other things like that, right? We are we are generations away from evolving away from some of those things, which were very important to our early ancestors in terms of being able to hunt and defend the tribe and stuff like that. So the ramifications of, of AI 
are, are, are both wonderful in terms of what it's going to be able to do to maybe help cure disease or, or perform surgeries better than surgeons can actually perform them to sort of, you know, very scary in terms of putting folks out of work and also the, the negative ramifications of, you know, bad actors. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. That's a topic all we could just be going and on and on. Now I want to get back to what you've seen, the common thread of organizations you've gone in, do you have you seen it? The the reasons when you're you're put in situations where they're turnarounds, is it mainly because of the leadership maybe that was there before? Is it maybe the a competitor that's come in and kind of yeah. changed things? What is is? Do you see a common thread? Is there something that you can draw on? There, there is. Um, it really does start at the top. It starts with with the leaders, right? And leaders who say, do what I say, but not what I do, you know, you're immediately setting the wrong cultural tone, right? I need you all to work hard, but I don't work hard. I, I need you all to do X, Y, and Z, but I don't do X, Y, and Z. And so more often than not, put, putting aside balance sheet troubles where someone may have just borrowed too much money and just more money is going to fix that, but b- businesses that have run into operational challenges, it very often starts with leadership. Now, you could argue, right, if a buggy whip company might have the greatest leadership on the planet, the reality is they're going out of business, right? Yeah. And so there are things in the speed with which business changes, back to the AI comments, right, um, are, are so rapid now. Certainly, you can have new competitors in or, or your, your products can become irrelevant very quickly, um, even if you have what I would say is a good leader. A great leader ought to be really spending their time thinking forward and seeing that and thinking about ways... Um, to get in front of that. And so I think leadership is is really, really critical. And we we talk about really um, three things when we're looking at a company and a company's culture and how to make a company perform better than its peers, right? And it, it's people, process, and culture. And <clears throat> people fundamentally are not repeatable, right? Um, and and so you have to create a process within which your people work, and you don't want that process to be debilitating. You don't want to put so many rules around that you lose creativity, right? But but the process will allow them to be repeatable, whether we're going to add a second person that does the same thing they do or that person retires. And so having great people with processes and then putting those processes in the systems by leveraging technology is really what allows a business to grow and thrive. And then ultimately you need a good culture because I think, you know, there's a saying that people don't quit companies, they quit bosses, right? And so people process culture is is, is super important. When you go into smaller companies, you see that people are, are really great usually, but they're wearing lots of different hats and that's not scalable. And so, you know, Oftentimes, these smaller companies don't really have a perspective on how to put a process in place and then how to build systems around that. And so as you know, a business builder, we can come in and take those really great people and help them put the processes around it and then create the platform for growth from there out, which is different than a business that's in trouble. But even, even with businesses that are in trouble and that have poor leaders, you start to dig in and see, well, if they had actually stood up good processes and built those around folks, um, you would have had better early warning signals or other things like that. And so, you know, it may sound overly simplified, but it really comes down to people, process, culture. In that order. Wow. Yeah. Well, so you've done Because this- look, think about this, right? We can have the greatest processes in the world. If we don't have any people to execute them, it doesn't matter, right? We could say we're going to draw a roadmap for what our culture is going to be, but if we don't actually grow that culture up with a group of people, it doesn't matter. So it really does start with people. Does does that change 20 years from now because of AI? 
maybe, but I think as good as AI may get, it's ultimately not going to be really be able to see the future. And so other things are going to change that you're going to need people thinking about. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. So you've done this on, I think one of the things I, I, I find most impressive about you is that you've done this on a high level. You've done this in multiple industries, right? Like what industries have you worked in? Oh gosh, I've worked in manufacturing, consumer products, telecom, uh, aerospace and defense, government contracting. So all different. I mean, we're talking blue collar, high-end white collar, technology. Yep. Uh, yep. But you've also been able to do this with kids. I want to hear about how how much of it is the same, how much of it is different, how do you, right? Like you've done the successful business, right? All good. But you've also done this coaching kids at, at, and you've share some of the, if you don't mind, just give the high level of the, uh, some of the teams that you've coached and, and, and the, the championships that you've had. This is a great time to brag. I want to hear that because, and then I want to break that down because I think there's a lot that can be learned. You probably see me smiling. Yeah. Um, Coaching is, you know, outside of parenting, coaching is the most important thing I do. And, and again, I coach my CEOs and companies, but I mean coaching kids when I say coaching is the most important thing I do. I have three boys. I've had the great benefit of having been able to coach them all in both lacrosse and football. I am a very passionate football guy going all the way back to, you know, our experiences in high school and, and the unbelievable positive impact that my coach has had on me. Um, I oftentimes have... Uh, folks, friends, colleagues who, who sort of think that I, I I praise football to the detriment of other sports. And so my kids play football, hockey, and lacrosse. Uh, hockey and lacrosse are amazing sports. But what really draws me to football as a coach is the complexity of it and uh, the strategy required to be successful with it. And it's a lot like a business, putting the right pegs in the right holes in order to create a, a full team. They say that the coach in football is the biggest impact of any sport. I had not heard that, but that I believe that. Yeah, no, I believe that. The reality is because of that, it allows me to leverage some of these cultural things we're talking about with the kids. And so, you know, we have we have a lot of different sayings among my coaching staff, and I've I've been fostering this coaching staff over years. And so, um, we have a staff of ten for a seventh grade football team, and <laughs> it requires you got to break it down. What, what, <laughs> ten? What are like what position? I mean, what are you coaching? So you have me, the head coach. Yep. Uh, I have an assistant head coach who's also my defensive coordinator. I have an offensive coordinator. I have a quarterbacks coach. I have a defensive back and receivers coach. I coach the fullbacks and the linebackers. Um, I have two line coaches. And by the way, some of the stuff we preach and really, you know, everybody wants to touch the ball. But the reality is the guy who touches the ball is the least important. It's the line that makes a winning team, makes a successful team. Those are the guys working the hardest. And so they have two coaches and they, you know, when we do, for example, um, we do films every Thursday night, they get pizza first. So we really sort of put the line out front because they're the, the backbone of the team. So two, two line coaches and then we have three team moms. Um, and we call them momagers, mom managers, but that sounds like a lot. But the reality is when we talk about our people and then you talk about our processes, right? And you talk about our culture, our culture is it is a football family. And so the three team moms are probably just as busy as the coaches in terms of we're thinking about um, we have pizza every Thursday night. We watch films every Thursday night. We have a uh, coffee for all the parents before every game. We have pizza for the kids after every game. Um, we do pool events, et cetera. And so we've created a culture of a brotherhood and a family where the parents and the kids and everybody is committed to this. And in fact, up front, when we get new players on the team, 
I meet with the parents and I talk about the fact that this isn't just your kid committing to this, it's you committing to this. And this is the culture that we operate on and we're really happy to, happy to have you as part of our family, but you need to buy into this commitment. And um, it, it took me till my third kid to really sort of develop this philosophy, and which is sort of funny when you think about how I've applied it to my companies. It took me, took me three kids to actually figure out how to apply this to, to, <laughs> to the kids. And my coaches have all subscribed to this and the coaches have become very tight as a result of it. The kids have become very tight. The families have become very tight. And the great thing is you talked about with football is 22 kids on the field, 11 versus 11, there are 22 jobs on the field, right? It's not like hockey. There are two defensemen on each side and there are three forwards on each side. Um, the reality is the roles are very unique and much like in a military unit or a business unit, you have some specialization in a particular role. And if you execute that role well, you do your job. We talk about all the time, don't worry about the other guy's job, do your job. The team functions as a unit. And if any component of the team breaks down, you don't have success. And so we start to teach the kids that at a very young age, because I believe it's ultimately gonna make them more successful in school, more successful in life. Um, and so we also say there are there's a position for every kid. I don't care if you're the worst athlete, you're the best athlete, you do or don't want this. And we've sort of created a philosophy around we will find a spot for everyone and we will figure out how to make everyone successful. And that also creates a lot of loyalty, not just from those guys, but I think largely from the teammates around them. And the, the team understands they need to help prop other people up or help people be more effective. If someone's new to the team, new to the game, um, coming off an injury, whatever the case may be. And so it's really critical, and I don't think there are other sports that can really allow you to find a spot for every player. Um, you know, our varsity coach has a no-cut policy. If you want to play football, you can be on the team, and they will find something for you to do and to be successful at and to be part of the team. Wow. I mean, getting back to the people, process, <laughs> culture, yeah. and you've proven it because, again, can you start sharing some of the – you're holding back on what you've accomplished so yeah, I, it's it's not easy to 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 brag about yourself, but I'm really I'm prompting you, please. You, 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 yeah. <laughs> so uh, this particular team, we've been together three years. Um, actually, we started in second grade with this group of kids in flag football, and we've won the championship every year. So second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, we actually run a full spread, no huddle, hand signal offense, and so. We, um, which, you know, we were told you couldn't do, we put that in, um, we started putting that in, in fifth grade and, it, and I think it's a little bit like companies, right? You want to solicit input. And so we talked to the kids about what the structure of the play. Wait, wait, so, so I want to back up. So, I mean, you're essentially doing the two minute drill all game long. Um, so the typical, um, sixth grade team will run, um, somewhere around 30 offensive plays. We run north of sixty. Yeah, per game. Yeah, sorry, sorry. I just wanted to so clarify which, for anybody yeah. who didn't understand who doesn't know football. Yeah, to, and well, to which is which is great for a whole host of reasons. One, it's more playing time for the kids, and it's an opportunity to rotate in some kids who may not be necessarily a two way starter. Or, and so we we always want to come out strong. We want to score quickly. We want to get some points up because we want to because our culture is we want to try to get everybody playing time and to do different things. And so the pace and the speed with which we go keeps the defense completely on their heels and off balance. Um, and it also allows us to leverage um, 
across the the playing field, the different kids and giving kids different opportunities. And so maybe we can say, hey, you know what? We're we're doing really well here. We're going to give a lineman an opportunity to run the ball. Or we're going to do some different things like that. And there are rules about weights and stuff like that. But so we 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 try to operate that way. But you're told, well, that's you know, you you'll never be able to get kids to do that at the, at this age level. And and we can, and we've been highly successful with it and others have too. So we're not unique. I think we're unusual, but the way we do it is we incorporate the kids into the culture. We incorporate the kids into the process so we can design the play, right? We can name the play. We can create the hand signal, but what we really do is we start with looking at the skills we've got and the playbook always changes depending on the kids. It's not, here's the playbook. You kids have to mold of the playbook. It's here are the kids. We got to mold the playbook to the kids the same way you would do with a company, right? You can't just roll into a company and say, well, this guy can't run our playbook. So just fire him and you're going to fire everybody. No, you've got that. That person may be very good. So maybe you've got to find another spot for them. More right. Like play the hand that you've got as opposed Ex- to. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, this is, we're not in the NFL here. We're dealing with kids. And so we're trying to create a positive experience for the kids and, and a positive culture for them. And so we design the plays, but the kids will then we'll sit down with them and say, can you do this? And, and we've developed that culture where it's acceptable to say, I'm not sure I can do that. We'll say, well, let's practice it. Let's see if you can. Oftentimes they can. If they can't, we'll say, okay, well, let, let's change that. And, and so we'll start to build the play around them. Then we let them name the play because they will remember the play. And then we let them create the hand signal. And so I don't say, this is our hand signal for this. You have to memorize my hand signal. I do it the backwards way, right? As a leader. Okay, you guys, you know, these are the, we and we have a set of hand signals that we do use. But if you don't like this particular hand signal as this age group coming up, let's change it. What do you want it to be? And if you don't like the name of this, what do you want it to be? And so, for example, we have our centers call the cadence, the snap count. The quarterback was really struggling with it. Uh, I, I think if you don't have that culture of openness and you don't create those relationships with the kids, they're just going to sort of suffer through it. But the quarterback came to me and said, it's just, it's not working for me. And, right, and these are 11 year olds. Um, can I call the snap count? And so we said, well, let's go practice it and let's work on it and let's see how it affects the line. And so we were very successful in making that change. But if you've got a, a very traditional command and control structure, you know, I'm the adult and I'm the coach and we're going to do it my way, you won't ever get the benefit of, of doing that. And in fact, one of the things I've learned to really get the kid's attention. When I talk to a kid, I take a knee. So I always look in the kid in the eyes. I'm not looking down at him. I'm not towering over him, right? And and that helps develop a relationship too. And I think that applies to business as well, right? If I'm sitting in my office with my feet up on a desk and I've got some guy at attention, you know, what, what, am, what, what is the environment that I'm creating there, right? So I want to get out of my chair. I want to walk over. I want to shake their hand. I want to put my arm around their shoulder and come on and sort of create an environment of openness. Wow. So let me flip it to you, flip it on you rather. Um, So you've learned all this stuff that you've applied to the kids. What have you learned from the kids that you apply in business? Yeah, the kids have unequivocally made me a better person. Um, Coaching has made me a better person. Certainly, despite all this philosophy, right, you run into tense situations in business or tense situations in games. It's a super close game. Again, right, it's seventh grade football. It's not the end of the world, but you get caught up in the moment. But it's really taken it to, to another level for me to recognize everybody's different. Everybody has something to offer. Um, and you philosophically know that and you preach that in business and you generally apply it. But really working with the kids has softened me in a better way 
that I reapply that to business, right? And they, and given the opportunity and given an environment and a culture, as we talked about with the QB, and that was just one example, where they're comfortable discussing certain things, um, you're really sort of pulling out of them that. And I think ultimately in business, you want to get that too. And so there are even times where we've been in some tight situations. We've called the timeout. I've gotten in the huddle. And I've asked the kids, what play do they want to run? Because what do they think is working? And, and you know, Literally in our a county championship game, the fullback ran off when the whistle was blown. And he's like, I'm being keyed every time. This is an 11 year old, right? So we had to teach him this. And so you're, you're really proud that they're listening. And he's like, when we study the film, so we know who their best player is on the opposing team. And and he's like, you know, number X is, is keying on me every play because he knows I'm going to lead block no matter what play we pull, who we pull, what we do. We said, okay, we're going to call this play, but we don't want you to run what you would run on this play. We want you to run that way. And it was a touchdown, right? Coaches didn't see that. 10 coaches on the side, plus it's a championship game. So the coaches from the other teams in New Canaan are there with me, supporting me. They're reading certain things, right? The kids saw that, but I credit the coaching staff for having created that culture of where, you know, in a very intense game, an 11-year-old is comfortable coming off the field and saying, hey, I'm seeing this, should we do something different? And so that makes me really proud because I think that that is going to create, you know, highly productive members of society, right? Yeah. And the other things we talk about, safety is our rule number one. We have five rules. The kids can recite the rules, you know, on command. Around safety, we talk about number one, everybody's got to be safe. It's a contact sport, it's a violent sport, but everybody's got to be safe. But we take it to another level and we say, listen, we also need to teach you how to play through pain right? And so we talk about playing hurt, but not playing injured, right? If you get a head injury, you're out. If we see any head-to-head -head contact, anything like that, you're out. And we have a trainer there and we get a quick assessment, but almost always we don't put them back in the game until they see a doctor on Monday. Hey, uh, someone stepped on your toe and it really hurts. Take a playoff, get back out there. Um, you know, I ripped the skin off my knee. It really hurts. Take a playoff, get back out there. And is, is that because we want to beat the kids up? No, but we are trying to teach them that, you know, you can play through pain. And at this age, right, it's pain, playing through some physical pain. But but as you get more into business, you have to really figure out how to play through the mental pain. Mm. Wow. <laughs> so how many championships? I have three, four um, with this group of football players. Wow. With one group. Have they ever lost? Uh, I don't mean like a game, but if they we, we've lost games, but we've never lost. lost a championship. Wow. Wow. Yeah. How much, you know, or do you have a bunch of superstars or would you say that this is, and the reason I say that getting back to like John Jay, for example, the, the year behind me, they won, I think they won the state championship. They didn't have a, they didn't have a single superstar. Yeah. It was just a, it was a perfect example. They were so well coached. They were small. They were very cerebral. I think a bunch of kids went to yep. Ivy League schools and stuff yep. like that. Yep. And, and I watched that final game, whatever that was, and I was in awe because the other team was bigger, stronger, faster, but they lost like it was coaching and intelligence. Yeah. So I, lo I love that. And it's actually not a hard question to answer. So New, New Canaan is a little bit of Texas in Connecticut. Um, football is an incredibly popular sport. As a result, in um, the grade schools up until junior high, um, we generally produce two or three football teams per grade. 
And so the reality is, and different than um, both hockey and lacrosse and some of the other sports, we don't have an A, B, and C team, right? So you try out for lacrosse, you try out for hockey, you get slotted on the A, B, or C team. The A team gets the best coaches, it gets the best field time, and not surprisingly, those kids pull ahead of the pack, and it's very difficult for a B team player to move up to the A team or a C team player to move up to the B team. They may have an incredible growth spurt and just physically they can overcome that, but it's, it's rare. The football teams are cut up to be perfectly even such that if in the middle of the season, we actually swapped coaches among teams that every coach would be happy with whatever team they had. I, I happen to sit on the, on the new Canaan youth football board. And so uh, coach development is one of the critical things we do. You talk about, I didn't become a head coach until I had my third kid. So I studied under all these other coaches to sort of get to where I was. So to answer your question, um, we don't have the best players. The best players are, are spread across three different teams in our grade. And you think about at this age, we've got 63 kids playing football, so 21 kids on a team. It's not a lot of kids for a football team, number one. And number two, at this age, how do you find enough linemen to spread across three teams? It's next to impossible, right? And so we've actually got a team that's physically small, it's in terms of numbers small, but because of the playbook we've designed, we build it around the kids. Okay. And so if, if we don't have, you know, a huge center and a huge tackle and a huge guard, you know, we're not running the A and the B gap. <laughs> yeah. We've got to figure out what else are we going to do? And so can we get some fast kids in the slot positions or what can we do differently? And over time, can we develop those skills? And we spent a lot of time, as I said, two coaches in line developing those things so we can do a lot of different things, but it's constantly playing to leverage, um, the, the hand were dealt to, to quote you, right? And so we have great players, but they're cut across three different teams. I think you, you referenced the fact that, you know, John Jay and it was a really smart group of kids, right? I mean, New, New Canaan tends to, to have families that are very high overachievers, lots of CEOs, lots of investment bankers, lots of private equity hedge fund types. And so I do think that we have um, very, very smart kids. Um, and I do think that that allows us to run the type of program that we run, and it allows us to be as successful as we are. Um, you know, our head coach is the winning uh, the head coach of the high school is the winning winningest coach in Connecticut history. Um, he just put up another state championship, and so you've got a fairly small town of fifteen thousand people, um, a not particularly diverse town. You know, you can picture it, right? And and sort of. Um, uh, and yet they're able to continue to win, win championships at that level. And I think it does have a lot to do with the kids. It has a lot to do with the coaches taking advantage of having a really smart group of kids and applying that in a way that, that is, you know, success is repeatable. Um, as we talked about, people are not repeatable. No. You referenced, you know, a year behind you was a different group of kids, but they won the championship, even there, there weren't really a whole lot of superstars. And so we recognize you know, people are not repeatable every year. We're going to have a different set of kids, a different, different set of kids we're playing against. Right. But processes are repeatable. And so building a process and including the flexibility that the process can change depending on how the kids change is what's repeatable. And that creates success. I mean, there's a clear theme here, <laughs> you know, people process culture. Ever, I mean, that really, I mean, you've just defined it. You've lived it. It's uh, it, it's worked. George, I, we could be talking for hours upon hours. There's so much. I really appreciate you uh, making the time to make this happen again in the spirit of time. 
appreciate all of your insights. There's a lot of takeaways uh, from this conversation. I feel very fortunate to have spent this time with you and uh, been able to share this with my audience. Thank you. Adam, thank you. I really enjoyed being here. This was a lot of fun. Maybe we can do it again sometime. I hope so. Awesome. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Connors, a network-wise podcast. If you or someone you know is looking for a career change, building a business, seeking to expand sales, or is just generally interested in improving your overall health and happiness, then head on over to networkwise.com to gain access to a plethora of resources to help you build your networking skills and community. Those who are ambitious will network. The ones who succeed will network wise.